Now, would you turn in your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We looked at this passage recently, Acts chapter 2, but it is a foundational passage when it comes to uh, looking at the church. Uh, Acts chapter 2 and verse 36. Acts chapter 2 and verse 36. 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And we know God will always bless the the reading of his own uh, inspired word. Some years ago, I was at a minister's conference, uh, and a good friend of mine who's a Presbyterian uh, minister was introducing me to one of his colleagues, and uh, he introduced me uh, like this. He said, this is Stephen Curry. He is a closeted Presbyterian. Now, uh, I think he thought he was paying me a compliment, but to be honest, I was speechless because I'm a Baptist. Uh, a Baptist, not by convenience, but by conviction. Now, please don't misunderstand that. I'm not a bigoted Baptist. Well, at least I, I hope I'm not. But I do believe that the Baptist view of the church is the biblical one. I respect other people's convictions, and I understand that not everyone sees it the way that I say, see it. There are good and godly men in other churches, uh, some who are personal friends of mine. I have spoken at uh, ministers' conferences in other denominations. I serve on committees, interdenominational committees for missionary societies. I uh, uh, run an interdenominational fraternal that draws ministers from all kinds of church uh, backgrounds. So I don't think I'm a bigoted Baptist, but I am a Baptist. A Baptist who has respect for people of different convictions, but a Baptist nevertheless. Now, uh, last week, or a few weeks ago, we began a study on the church, and I tried to impress upon you the significance and importance of the church and the importance the New Testament places upon the church by looking at those three uh, pictures that describe the church in the New Testament. The church is a building, it's the temple in which God resides, Uh, The church is a body uh, of which Christ is the head, and it's a bride that is loved by Christ. Now, this morning I want to get into some practical issues, and I want you to notice three things. And the first of these is the organization of the church. Now, sometimes you hear people say the church isn't an organization, it's an organism. Now, there's only one thing wrong with that statement. It's not true. Now, it is true that the church is an organism, that it's a living, breathing, growing thing, but it's not to say, it's not true to say that the church isn't an organization. The New Testament gives us quite a bit of information as to how the church was organized uh, in New Testament times. 
that as we look at the New Testament, we discover that, first of all, the church had a recognized membership. Now, because we have no verse in the New Testament that says, Thou shalt have thy name on a church register, there are certain Christians who say it's unnecessary and indeed unbiblical to be members of a local church. They say, after all, I'm a member of the true church, the universal church, the, the body of Christ, and that is sufficient. Now, the, only, the problem with such people is that they feel to distinguish between the universal church to which every true Christian belongs and the local church to which we should belong. Now, let me illustrate that in the Gospels. Jesus only mentioned the church twice in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. Now, turn to Matthew chapter 16 uh, for a moment and verse 18. Matthew 16 and verse 18. Matthew 16 and verse 18 and I tell you, you are Peter, Matthew 16, 18, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus gives an unconditional promise that the church will be built and the very strongholds of Satan will fall in the face of the church's advance. Now that is not a promise to the local church. That's a promise to the universal church, to the whole church, because local churches do diminish, die and disappear, and their buildings become carpet uh, warehouses. But the universal church of Jesus Christ goes on from strength to strength, until, as Cooper says, the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Then turn over a few pages to Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15. Matthew 18 and verse 15. If your brother sins against you, Matthew 18 verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, um, treat him as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now here Jesus sets forth the process of discipline, which is interesting, isn't it? Because it tells us that Jesus didn't envisage perfect local churches. You have to discipline and exercise discipline. If you have something against your, your brother or against your sister and you have to go to them, it, it tells you that the church wasn't perfect. Jesus didn't envisage perfect local churches. But he says you go in individually to them. You take, if they don't listen to you as an individual, you take two or three witnesses along. And if they don't listen to the two or three witnesses, you take it to the church. And then if they don't listen to the church, you treat them as an unbeliever, as a pagan or a tax collector. Now, is that the church universal? It can't be. Because how could you inform every single member of the church, even here in Balamina, that you have a grievance against somebody in the church? You can't do it. It can't happen. But Jesus in Matthew 18 is referring to a local church, a local assembly of believers. You can't exercise that kind of discipline over the church universal. Common sense tells you that, yes, there is the universal church to which every true Christian belongs, but there is also the local church to which we should belong. 
You remember in the Corinthian church, there was a, a member of the church who was having an immoral relationship with his stepmother, an incestuous relationship with his stepmother. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 13, expel that wicked man from among you. Now, if they were to put that person out of the church, surely there had to be a church to put him out of. Doesn't that make sense? How can you expel someone from something that doesn't exist? This man was in membership of the local church, and Paul urges the church to exclude him from membership unless he repents. There was a clear distinction between a member and a non-member. People knew not only those who had professed faith, not only those who belonged to the universal church, they knew who belonged to their church, the local church. And what I'm saying is the very existence of discipline in the early church must mean that the church was local and it had a recognizable, definable membership. It's interesting when we come to 2 Corinthians, that same erring brother is repented. And so Paul writes to them to reaffirm their love for him. In other words, to bring him back into the church. Do you get the point? You can't put somebody out of something that doesn't exist, and you can't bring people back into something that doesn't exist either. Well, you say, point accepted. The church was a recognizable, divinable body, but you might say nowhere in the New Testament does uh, it teach that the church should have a list of church members. That's necessary uh, that's unnecessary and unbiblical. Who's to say that there wasn't a church of a list of church members in the early church? We know that they had a list of widows because Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5 and verse 9 and says, No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60 and has been faithful to her husband. And if they had a list of widows for administrative purposes... Why would they not have a list of members for administrative purposes? Now, that may or may not have been the case, but I just want you to grasp this point that the local church was a recognizable, undefinable body. You could be in the church or you could be out of the church. The organization of the church, it had a recognized membership. Secondly, it had a gathered membership. To be a member of the church in the New Testament, which, remember, was a recognizable, definable group, you also had to be, uh, you had to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we mean by a gathered church. Believers gathered together under the preaching of the Word of God. After Peter preached passionately in Acts 2, we're told in verse 41 that those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see that, saying this at the baptismal service, we see that repeatedly in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 9, when Paul came down and tried to join the church in Jerusalem, they said no. You're not getting in here. Because he was a persecutor of the church. His reputation had preceded him. And it was only when Barnabas came down and intervened on his behalf, shared his testimony, that he was brought into the membership of the church. And you see that again and again 
in the letters, in the epistles of the New Testament. They're addressed to churches, but they're assuming that the members of those churches were actually converted. So Romans begins to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, called to be holy, loved by God. Corinthians to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy. Ephesians to the church in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Philippians to the saints, this is interesting, to the saints in Christ Jesus in Philippi. So there were Christians in the membership, together with the overseers and deacons, with the church at officers. And right through the epistles, you have this assumption that the members of the church who received those letters, who read those letters, were Christians. You can't read the New Testament without recognizing that fact. Now, that's reflected in our own constitution as a church. The church constitution says, the church membership shall be composed of those who profess repentance towards God and faith. Faith in the Lord Jesus. And you say to me, uh, in objection, are you telling me that every member of Balamina Baptist Church is actually a Christian? And I say to you, well, probably not. But the point is that every member of Balamina Baptist Church professes to be a Christian and has shared their testimony with the elders in order to gain access to the membership of the church. And so if someone applies for membership, one of the first questions they're asked is, just tell us how you became a Christian. The very word for church in the New Testament is ecclesia, the Greek word ecclesia. And it's made up of two words, ek and klesia, klesis. It means out, ek, out of, klesis, call. It's the called out ones that God has called them out of the world and he has called them to faith in himself. So the church of the New Testament had a recognized membership, a gathered membership, And then thirdly, a baptized membership. All the members of the various churches were baptized. We read that again in Acts chapter 2. So those who received the word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So those who received the word, believed the word, responded to the gospel, were baptized, and added to the church. So they were all baptized. Now, why did they do that? Did the the apostles just think, I I think it would be a good idea to baptize everybody who was coming into the church. Let's, Let's put that into our constitution. No, they didn't. They were following the blueprint of Jesus. Jesus, in his commission to that little embryo church on the Mount of Olives, said, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded. And so in his commission to the church, he says, you are to make disciples through the preaching of the gospel. You are to baptize, mark disciples through baptism. And you are to mature disciples through teaching. That was the commission that he gave. And they didn't think that the commission of Jesus was something that they 
could trifle with, that it was a take it or leave it uh, kind of suggestion that Jesus made. This was his blueprint for the evangelization of the world. And so when you come into the New Testament and you again read the letters, there is this assumption that all who read those letters in the churches were baptized. One interesting verse is 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 13 because there was rivalry in the church and and actually Paul is trying to downplay the significance of baptism. And he asks the question, he says, were you baptized in the name of Paul? The answer to that question is, is no. We weren't baptized in the name of Paul. We were baptized in the name of Christ. We were baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the baptism we received. But you see, if they hadn't been baptized at all, that argument just wouldn't have made sense. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. We were baptized in the name of the, the Trinity. Now, the majority of Christian denominations accept this fact that to be a member of the church, you have to be baptized. If you wanted to join the Catholic Church, you'd have to be baptized. They wouldn't let you in unless you were baptized. If you wanted to join the Presbyterian Church, you would have to be baptized. They wouldn't let you in unless you were baptized. If you wanted to join the Methodist Church, they, they wouldn't let you in unless you were baptized. The only two official denominations that admit members that aren't baptized, I think, are the Quakers and the Salvation Army. Because most churches recognize that baptism is the distinctive mark of discipleship. So they had a recognized membership, they had a gathered membership, and they had a baptized membership. Now, how do I need to apply this? Well, first of all, can I ask you a Christian that if you're a Christian, that's the most fundamental issue of all. Are you a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you trusted in Christ as your Savior and Lord? That's what Paul told the Philippian jailer before he was baptized and before he joined the church in Philippi. He said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That's the first thing. If you're not a Christian, you should be a Christian. Secondly, uh, if you are a Christian, you should be baptized. There was no such thing in the early church as an unbaptized Christian. They just, they just didn't exist. There's no such thing as an unbaptized Christian. And, and to be a disciple, to be a follower of the Lord Jesus without being baptized is like joining the army and refusing to wear the uniform. Well, not for me. I'm just going to serve in my own way, in my own terms. And listen, you know, of all the commandments of God, we fall so um, short uh, at every one of them. We stumble and fall. But here is one commandment that we can obey perfectly. And fully we can be baptized. We should be baptized. And then if you are baptized, if you are a believer, you are baptized, are you a church member? You should be a church member. There was no such thing as a non-Christian church member. There was no such thing in the New Testament as an unbaptized uh, church member. Uh, but there was no such thing as a Christian 
It wasn't a church member. That just, that just didn't happen. There was no Christian in the early church that said, um, wherever I lay my hat, there's my home. Right, don't misunderstand me, please. I, I believe that the church is a voluntary association. You will never get me coming to you and saying, you should be a member. I don't do that. I don't pressurize or manipulate or blackmail anybody into membership. That's, that's not something I do. I want people, it's a voluntary association, I want people to be in the church because they want to be in the church. Because they, they want to join the church. All I'm saying is from the Bible, if you are not a Christian, you should be a Christian. If you are a Christian, you should be baptized. And if you are baptized, you should be in membership of the church, the organization of the church. The second thing I want you to notice is the government of the church. We've considered the organization of the church, the makeup of the church. I want to build on that a little, and I want you to notice three things about the government of the church. First of all, the church was independently constituted. Baptists believe in the independency and autonomy of each local church. You will know that there is a Catholic church, one Catholic church. In fact, Catholics don't distinguish between the Catholic, which means universal, the Catholic church, and the universal church. They don't uh, distinguish between those two. So if you're not a member of the Catholic Church, you're not um, a true Christian. You cannot be uh, a true Christian unless you're a member of the Catholic Church. Uh, now, since Vatican II, they did modify that a little bit, and they talked about the separated brethren, but they say every true Christian must be a member of the Catholic Church. There is the Anglican Church, which is one church with different branches in different countries. There is the Presbyterian Church. The Presbyterian Church in Ireland is made up of 500 congregations, but they constitute one church. There is the Methodist Church in Ireland, which is made up of different societies. But as Baptists, we don't speak about the Baptist Church in Ireland or the Baptist Church in the world. We speak of Baptist churches or Baptistic churches. Our association is an association of Baptist churches who voluntarily come together to co cooperate on the things that we, uh, we agree on and that we can't do alone. But every church is independent and autonomous and no outside authority or, or body hands down uh, dictates that the congregation must follow that the local church itself is under the authority of Christ as its head. Now the question comes then, is that biblical? Is that what the New Testament teaches about the church? Well, let's look at the evidence. First of all, notice that some of the letters of the New Testament are addressed to specific churches in which specific problems pertaining to that local church are addressed. So 1 Corinthians is addressed to the church of God that is in Corinth. Um, there, were, uh, there was a local congregation, and that local congregation had a problem, uh, not just one problem, lots of problems that had to be addressed. So for instance, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul writes to them about the Lord's Supper, and he says, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. 
And Paul is writing to them as a church to put their house in order and assert out those problems. When he writes to them about that immoral brother in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, hand this man over to Satan. He doesn't threaten to send in presbytery. He doesn't threaten to send in um, a a bishop. He doesn't uh, threaten any kind of outward um, uh, uh, interference, apart from the fact that he uh, is an apostle and had the right to address them. But he asked them to sort out their problems themselves. So that's the first thing. The letters that are addressed uh, in the New Testament are addressed to individual churches. Secondly, when a group of churches are addressed, the plural form is used. Paul, writing to a group of churches in the same geographical area, addresses that letter not to the church in Galatia, but to the churches in Galatia. You find that again and again in the New Testament. Acts 16 and verse 5. So the churches were strengthened, churches were strengthened in their faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Romans 16, 16. All the churches of Christ greet you. Acts 14, verse 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church. Now we could go on and on with reference after reference, but what I want you to think about is the churches in Revelation. And the letters of Christ to those churches, to the church in Ephesus, to the church in Smyrna, to the church in Pergamon, the church in Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. And all those churches were in the same geographical area. In fact, they were on the same uh, postal route. But the risen Christ addresses each of those churches individually. And more than that, The threats that he levels against those churches are individual threats. So to the church in Ephesus, the Lord says, unless you repent, I will come and remove the lampstand, which means they would experience a spiritual blackout in that local congregation. To the church in Sardis, he says, if if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief to that church. To the church in Laodicea, which was looked warm. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him. It's not a frightening picture. Here's the church assembled uh, for worship. And Christ is on the outside of the church knocking the door and saying, remember me, let me into your worship service. But an individual church, The appeal of the risen Lord Jesus is to the church local, to the individual church, because churches in the New Testament were independent. Now, the classic objection to that by our friends and other uh, denominations is they say, what about Acts 15? When the church met together and made a decision, and then uh, uh, that decision was handed out, handed down to the other churches, the council at Jerusalem. I would beg you to read that chapter carefully because the church in Jerusalem had sent people out that were unsettling the churches that Paul had planted 
And so Paul goes back to the source of the problem, which was the church in Jerusalem, and speaks to them, and they make a decision that, uh, that they were perfectly free in these Gentile churches as long as they didn't uh, eat uh, um, non-kosher food. But even that decision wasn't binding upon every church because we know the church in Corinth ate food that was sacrificed to idols. It was a Pacific problem in a Pacific area and the problem originated in the Jerusalem church. So the churches of the New Testament were independent churches. And to be honest, uh, our insatiable desire for uniformity with centralized authority um, is, is a great hindrance, I believe, to the spread of the gospel. One of the reasons the churches spread so quickly in, uh, in the early church, in the early life of the church, was that independency. They weren't shackled by centralized and autocratic bodies who uh, would make a decision and wouldn't let the churches make a decision until they had passed it through 30 committees and subcommittees. And the genius of the Baptist view of the church is that it allows the church to adapt to the country, the culture, or the community that it's in without a centralized body determining what hymns they sing what versions they read, what dress code they have, what policy they have on every little detail. The churches of the New Testament were independently constituted, and secondly, they were congregationally regulated. Now, I did have originally congregationally governed, but that's not quite what I wanted to say, because when people think of congregational church government, they think the church is a democracy. Uh, which soon and inevitably uh, descends into anarchy. One man, one vote, no pastor, no pope. Now, um, as I said in our first study, the church is not a democracy. It's a theocracy. It's ruled by its head, Christ the church. Christ the head of the church. But in, in independency, the highest court is the church itself. So it's not the elders who bring into membership, and it's not the elders who exclude from membership. If you think back to that case in First Corinthians of the immoral brother who was excluded from membership, it's the church that brings, uh, excludes him from membership, and it's the church that brings him back into membership. First Corinthians 5 and verse 4. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is with you and the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Who hands him over to Satan? It's the church. It's not the elders. It's not a bishop. It's not somebody outside the church. It's the membership itself. In that process of discipline led down by Jesus, you approach the person individually you establish the matter in the presence of two or three witnesses. And then thirdly, you don't take it to the elders. You don't take it to, to uh, uh, an outside body. You, you tell it to the church. It's the church that appoints its officers. In Acts chapter 6, uh, choose out from among yourselves seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit, and wisdom, and we will appoint them to this duty. 
was the church that chose them. And even when it comes to the appointment of elders, elders are appointed by the church. In Acts 14 and verse 23, we're told that Paul and Barnabas appointed elders in every church. The authorized version says, ordained. But that word means to stretch forth the hand. And it was used of voting in the, the Greek legislative council in Athens. So elders are appointed not by Paul and Barnabas. They are set aside by them after they are uh, appointed by the church or voted on by the church. So elders don't appoint elders. Elders don't appoint deacons. Elders don't decide who comes in and out of membership. It's the church, the church, the church. So the church meeting is central to the life of the church. Paul's appeal is never to an outside body, but always to the church itself. So as far as the government of the church is concerned, they're independently constituted, congregationally regulated, and thirdly, eldership-led. Now, in the New Testament, we have elders, and elders are appointed by the church, but they are appointed to lead the church. Now, we'll come on to this in more detail, but in Hebrews 13 and verse 17, we have this injunction, Obey your leaders, and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account to God. In 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 12, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them highly for their work's sake. It's a biblical requirement to esteem them highly for their work's sake. So yes, in independency, the highest court in the church is the church itself in that they can appoint and remove elders, but when elders are appointed, they are appointed to lead. Remember, years ago, the young people in Rosemary Park, we, we had planned, when I was a young person, we had planned some activity that the elders didn't approve of. And so the elders said, no, you can't do that. And one of the young people at the committee meeting, young people's committee meeting, said, elders? Like, who do they think they are? Well, they're elders. They're elders. And they're appointed to lead. Now, of course, the New Testament qualifies that leadership. First Peter chapter uh, 5 uh, tells us, uh, well, Peter says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, for, and not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Well, that's a key passage, because remember how the shepherd led the sheep in the New Testament. He never drove them from behind. He led them. He went in front of them. He called them by name, and they followed him. So his, his leadership was consensual, but he did lead. They had confidence in the, the shepherd because they, they, they heard his voice, they trusted his voice, and they followed him. It's a consensual leadership. Now, that's crucially important. One 
famous Presbyterian theologian said, a pastor in an independent church has as much job security as a pub pianist. And sometimes, unfortunately, that can be true. If, if that balance between leadership and where the authority of the church lies isn't tweaked sensitively, we can get ourselves into all kinds of problems. So then, the Church of the New Testament was an independently constituted, congregationally regulated, but eldership-led. Now, the final thing, and our time's away, I was going to say about the privileges of membership. You see, when you're in membership, you can, well, first of all, you can get involved, can't you? That that the offices and the, the works of the church are open to you. And sometimes people say, you know, well, I mean, a Baptist church is a very hard church to break into. It's very hard to get to know people. And it is a big church, and I'm sure that's probably the case. But you know, do you know how to break into the life of the church? You get involved, and you start to do things. In fact, um, uh, Paul uh, says of deacons that those who serve well as deacons gain a great confidence, a great assurance in the Lord. There, there is a blessing in doing. And when you're in the membership of the church, you can, you can get involved in the work and the life of the church. And then you get to know people because you're serving alongside them in the GB and the BB and the various organizations. You're, you're serving with them. You get to know them. And uh, you begin to love them as you should. So that's the, 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 the first thing. It's, it's, it's a, a privilege of, of membership that you can be involved. It's, it's a privilege to be involved in the government of the church. As I said, the church meeting is the final court. That's where elders are appointed. You can complain all you like about the elders. But if you're not in membership of the church, how, how can you vote on, on who should be appointed as an elder and who shouldn't be appointed as an elder? We, we, Alex is leaving us to get married. He's gone the way of all flesh. He's going to get married. And he, he's leaving in the summer. And we're looking for an assistant pastor. Well, if you're in membership of the church, you can have a contribution to make in that. You can, you can vote in that. You can be involved in the, the decisions the church makes. And then, when you're in membership, you put yourself under the care and discipline of the church. That there, there are people looking out for you. There are people trying to shepherd you, imperfectly, maybe, but they're trying their best to shepherd you and help you into heaven. So, so should you be a member? Well, let's step back one. Are you baptized? Let's go back one more. Are you a Christian? If you're a Christian, you should be baptized and you should be uh, in membership of the church. I hope I haven't bored you silly this morning, but I think it's important to cover those things. Thank you uh, for listening so well.